Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agricultural literacy discussion. This podcast is brought to you by New York Agriculture in the Classroom and the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hi, it's Katie Carpenter, and I'm your host for our very last episode of Outstanding in Their Fields' first season. I hope that you've enjoyed traveling across Iowa and New York with us as we've explored everything from pigs and grains to maple syrup and berries and vegetables. You also had the chance to meet some of the most incredible teachers who we hope have inspired you with their creativity in connecting food and agriculture in their classrooms. In our final episode of season one today, we will explore urban agriculture in upstate New York, specifically in Syracuse. We will speak with Jesse Lyons of Brady Farm about what it's like to grow food in the middle of the city. We will also hear from the incredible Morgan Borman, an agricultural science teacher at a new charter school focused on agriculture in the city of Syracuse. Please note that the sound quality may not be up to our normal standards, as these interviews were captured through Zoom during our period of quarantine and social distancing due to COVID-19. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with me, Jesse. This spring is such a busy time on any farm, and I know we are eager to learn about the work that happens on an urban farm. Could you give us an overview of Brady Farm and about your role as the farm coordinator? Sure. We're in Syracuse, New York, and we are nearly six acres, which is a little bit different. And there's not many urban farms this size, but we're a nonprofit farm. And we're part of an organization called the Brady Faith Center, which is actually a Catholic mission. So the farm was created really as a project to get more food into our immediate community because Syracuse has a lot of food access challenges because we're high poverty rates, but also a lack of grocery stores and just actually getting to fresh produce. So we started this farm, but it's also a way of getting people employment, just having a really nice natural space for people to come to in the community, and obviously getting food and education. So we grow vegetables. We are a vegetable farm, and we do grow a little bit of fruit, but not a lot. And what about your role as farm coordinator? What does a day in your life look like? My role as a farm coordinator is not as much farming as I'd like. (laughs) Being a nonprofit organization, we have to do a lot of fundraising. And our mission is so diverse that, you know, my job is about making sure that everything is functioning on the farm and that we are able to successfully grow the produce, but it's also the hiring and things like that, but fundraising and doing a lot of coordination with project partners. We have lots of partners in the community. They're bringing students to the farm, so we're doing educational outreach with them, or they have volunteer programs, doing other types of novel ways of doing food distribution in the community. So my role is really about putting all of those big pieces together so that the farm is operating as a farm, but also that we're taking advantage of this opportunity of this farm and this place to serve as many people as possible in as many different ways as possible. So we really stretch ourselves. So my average day is not always on the farm. Some days I'm doing a lot of meetings and grant writing or 
reporting and things like that. But right now we do have a lot of activity on the farm. So did you always know that you wanted to go into a career in agriculture? Or did you have other jobs before you landed at Brady Farm? No, I didn't ever. Looking back, I always, I could see this thread throughout my life, starting in college, where I would always randomly focus on food and agriculture. If I had to do a research paper, it was around food, an economics paper, it was around farming. And I didn't really figure that out until this happened. But no, my background is in forest ecology. My master's is in landscape architecture. And then I was doing natural resource education for seven years before this. But I always gardened and I was always a little bit obsessive about food production and having access to food. So that has been a theme throughout my life, whether it was a hobby or my professional life. And so from what I was understanding that you didn't grow up in this area either. You were not native of Syracuse, that you grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Is that right? And what brought you out this way? Yeah, I'm actually from Portland, Oregon, and the long and winding road that brought me here was really to go to grad school at SUNY ESF. So that's where I got my master's in landscape architecture, and especially here in Syracuse, the program is really focused on connecting people, students to the immediate community. And I ended up doing my capstone work, working with community gardeners and understanding how we can do a better job of designing community gardens to serve people's needs. So I became very intimate with people in the south side of Syracuse, which that garden I focused on happens to be just around the corner from the Brady Farm now that I work at. I came to Syracuse really to do my master's in landscape architecture thinking about ecology and ended up getting into the food studio and looking at how we interact with food in the landscape and how that changes our communities. And I got attached. So here I am. Well, that is great. We're glad you got attached to Central New York. Now, you mentioned in your introduction that you are located in the city of Syracuse. And I think as people think about New York State, especially people who may not be from New York listening to this podcast, automatically the big city they think of is New York City. But we really have multiple urban centers in upstate New York that include Buffalo and Albany and Rochester and Syracuse as a major population center. So obviously your Brady Faith Center was already here in Syracuse, but why was this location in Syracuse selected for your farm? Well, there's not a lot of open space of significant acreage in the city. So it took a fair bit of time to find an appropriate property because property values are very, very low in Syracuse. It had had apartment buildings. There had been soil remediation that had already happened on the property. So we didn't have the same contamination issues that most urban farms have to deal with. And it's this huge open, you know, nearly six acres that is kind of tucked away and nobody really paid attention. Nobody paid attention to it because it would have been so expensive to develop it. We had to get the property rezoned. We had to get a zoning use variance in order to do this and resubdivision. So a lot of bureaucratic stuff just to be able to have the farm here on this site. But ultimately, the reason they permitted it was because it's so hard to develop properties of this size because the developer can't get their money out of it. And clearly, it's a really great open space use. So there's a lot of wonderful benefits for using this site as an urban farm. So that was ultimately why we were able to choose it. And that was supported by the city of Syracuse finding that location too. And now I wanted to just touch on something you alluded to earlier about the purpose of this farm. And so from my understanding, this operation was built over the last few years to meet the needs of your community. 
which could mean access to fresh food, job training. Could you tell me a little bit more about how the farm meets the needs of your population? Yeah, so we don't do any of it as well as we would like, but we are doing some things a lot better than we expected and not necessarily what was in our original plan. The food access is the primary goal. We want to have more fresh food available. So we do have a farm stand at the farm. We also sell at the regional market. And this year we are actually opening a new farm stand in the community. It's taken us a number of years to find those partnerships, um, but there's a very big hole of dense population without any access to fresh produce in the community. So we're going to be able to open a farm stand in partnership with another community center. Um, so getting that food into the community, so through farm stands, but also a CSA, you know, so we do the box deliveries and we offer discounted boxes and donated boxes to make it as affordable as possible for folks. You know, and things like using EBT and farmer's market coupons. It took us a couple years to be able to receive farmer's market coupons. And then once people did, we realized that this was a really unmet need because people have this benefit that they have no ability to use because they have no direct access to a farm market. And it is so difficult to get to the farm markets because of schedules or transportation issues. So people had all this possibility of buying fresh food that they couldn't actually take advantage of. So our farm is able to do that. So that became a new resource in the community that we didn't appreciate was needed. The educational piece, we have so many school groups who want to be able to come to the farm and who do come to the farm. There's only like 600 kids, something like that, that came to the farm last year, but we reached nearly 3,000 people through the farm, directly being at the farm or some of the outreach activities we do in the community. So, you know, that's learning about simply walking around the farm, getting kids exposed to just fresh produce. They've never seen a carrot growing. All they know of a carrot is a little strange looking log thing in a plastic bag. So showing them how to pick a carrot, washing it, and eating it fresh. Those very simple interactions are so profound and eye-opening it goes much further into the community than just with the kids. We have a lot of adult groups and people who they never tried things because they were always told it was gross, but they never did it. Or maybe they did try it and somebody prepared it in a really bad way, or it was only canned or it was only frozen. So why would they eat it? And then they come and they try it and they pick it themselves. They're like, ah, this is not what I thought a green bean tasted like or asparagus tasted like. And so it really changes how people think about food their willingness to eat more fresh produce and also to just be outside and understand how good it can feel. We also take on people for workers are very conscientious about hiring people from the immediate community and also creating space as an organization to recognize that they may not have education that you would typically get in most places of employment. They may also have a lot of life challenges. We are in a very high poverty area. And being poor is <laughs> that I've learned a lot about just how hard it can be living in concentrated poverty and how hard just basic things like childcare and getting to the store or a doctor's appointment, how disruptive those basic things can be when you are living in poverty. And that makes it very hard for people to be employed and to retain jobs when it takes so much longer to make things happen. So we're able to have people, employees who have some of those challenges in life, and we recognize that those are challenges and that they need to have a little bit of space to work through that. 
and not lose their job because they're late because they had so many doctor's appointments for their kids or for themselves or whatever. There's so many different things that come up that have really shocked me that are just kind of normal ways that folks are operating under, but that it's a large majority of our community is operating under those hard circumstances. So for us, the worker training is giving space for those people who have challenges to be employed because the reality is life, but then also giving them just some of the basic skills and expectations around how to be a good employee and having these jobs that are earth-based jobs are very therapeutic. And so for volunteers, for the kids, for visitors, but also for our employees, we've found that giving them this access to turning the soil, planting seeds, having fresh air and sunshine on a regular basis in their life has really changed their mental health. There's a lot more serenity in their life. This is a place where people, even though it can be very hard work, they find this as a place of serenity and restoration. And so that's really important to us that this is more than just a job, but that this is really something that has been transformative for the employees we have at the farm. And it is, it's more than just the employees. This is a place that a lot of people in the community come here for restoration and just needing a place of calm and feeling good and kind of that energy of life around them that's really positive. And then let's talk a little bit more about your markets also. You mentioned your CSA. Are you sharing that with the larger population of Syracuse as a means to fundraise? And let's talk a little bit about what a CSA is in case people don't know. Or is it more of a weekly CSA? Every two weeks you can get a bag of groceries similar to a food box program. And how does that work for you? So CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and it was originally intended with the idea that the flow of money is hard for farmers throughout the year, and we have all of our expenses are up front in the year, and we don't get our money until harvest season. But also farms suffer from the whims of nature, and sometimes crops fail. So Community Supported Agriculture was a way of customers saying, you know, we're in it with you. We are going to support you. And then the benefit to the customers is they get the bounty of the farm. The farm commits back to the customer of giving them the best of what they can. So our CSA is a little bit different in that spirit because we are really trying to support people who have economic resource constraints. So yeah, our CSA, we sell to the suburbs and we need people of higher income to help subsidize the fact that we're keeping our CSA shares very affordable and our general produce very affordable in order to make it as accessible as possible to our neighbors. So we have some residents from the immediate neighborhood who participate in the CSA, but the majority of them are not. And the CSA we have set up is actually very complicated in some ways because we're trying to make it as useful to as many people as possible. So you can get weekly shares, and that would be a box that you either pick up at the farm, one of our farm stands, or a business or church in the area. And this year we're modifying because we can't grow everything. Like I said, we have soil issues. We do grow organically, so we have pest issues that are challenging. And we can't grow cabbage, any of the coal crops. We have a very narrow window. The sweet midge is an insect that's just really devastating much of the area. So I'm not going to kill myself trying to grow a crop that I can't grow. And I can't grow blueberries because our soil pH is too high. But you know what, Reeves, <laughs> Brian, he's got cold crops. He's got blueberries. He's got strawberries. 
So we're going to be partnering with other farms this year. So customers have an option of buying a regional box that would have products that we grow here at the farm, but also would be including products that we can't grow. And in that way, we're better able to support other farms and also give people the variety of food that they want. And then now, especially as we're dealing with the coronavirus and restrictions on people's movement, you're going to be expediting a program that is called the Grocer's Box that will be including things that aren't just grown in central New York and may not be in season. So if people feel like they need a lemon to eat their asparagus, well, we'll have a lemon in your Grocer's Box. The occasional pineapple might show up, but things that are out of season, and it's a way to more wholly support people in getting produce into their diet recognizing that eating local isn't always 100% of the answer for most families who are low income. And for most families, period, you know, not just low income families, but we want to support people as best we can. So we really have diversified how we do our CSA program to try to be as accessible to as many people as possible and how they actually eat food. So when people think of agriculture or farming, they're usually thinking of big open fields, tractors, and rural areas. An urban farm really breaks all of those preconceived notions of what growing food looks like. How do you describe the differences in an urban farm and a farm that might be found in rural New York or just outside of the city limits? Most people would describe most urban farms and ours as a very large garden. I think six acres is hardly a garden, but it's really designed to look more like a garden where you have beds and a lot of diversity of crops. Being small, you know, six acres is very large for an urban farm, but most urban farms really don't have that type of acreage. So they have to rely on crops that have to turn over quickly. Things like lettuce, you know, you can get six crops of lettuce in, in a year instead of relying on two plantings of soy and corn or something like that. So you need things that are higher value because the work is really intensive. We aren't putting a big tractor out here. You know, we're not using heavy machinery. So that means we're relying on physical labor. So we are relying more on our own backs and that's hard work and it takes a lot more money to be doing physical labor. So the type of things we do is very different. How we treat the soil, how we deal with pests and pathogens, also being an organic farm. Most urban farms tend to be organic for a variety of reasons. For us, we just believe it's the best thing to do to keep ourselves and our neighbors healthy. But that's hard work also. Growing organically is very hard. So we have things like Rene, which is these big white sheets that sunlight and water can get through, but it, it prevents bugs from getting in. So you're going to see things like long rows covered in these white sheets and black plastic down that's able to help prevent the weeds from coming up. We also use high tunnels. So we have two and we're in the process of building a third high tunnel right now, which is like an unheated greenhouse. And so that's a way for us to extend that season of certain crops that we have so that we can continue having tomatoes into November. Our lettuce, we've been able to harvest 12 months out of the year so far. We use different techniques, but you see more bodies, less equipment, <laughs> and just a few other little things for pest issues and things like that that you don't see at a normal big farm. Now let's talk a little bit about what are some of the major tasks that happen. So you're trying to produce things all year round and producing things in your high tunnel and your mushrooms, but what's happening each one of these seasons? So if we were to come and visit your farm this spring, what would be happening? Who would be there? In a typical year when we can have lots of visitors here, which might not be this year, we are getting all the soil ready. 
well, right now, I kind of count this as spring. It feels very springy right now. We have our high tunnel going up. So we're getting all of those projects that don't mean that plants need to be tended. Those things are happening right now. Like we'll be inoculating the shiitake logs, getting those ready, getting the plastic. We put down the black plastic I mentioned that we use for mulch, getting that down on the ground, solarizing some of the beds, which is a way of kind of making the soil hotter and prompting the weeds to pop up so that we can actually burn them. So we'll take a flamethrower down the beds and <laughs> torch the weeds before they get a chance to get too big. So a lot of it's going to be soil prep. We just had five loads of wood chips delivered that we're using to mulch our paths and some of our flower beds and compost, of course, getting compost spread. And then pretty much like once we start moving into May, things really start happening because that's when plants start coming up. May to early June is this nice spring peak where it's just everything begins to flourish and it's before the summer season hits. That's when the weeds start showing up and we have to start taking care of those guys before they get out of hand and a lot of that early harvest. That time of year is also when we're really getting ready for the market. Our farm stands don't really start and the CSA doesn't start until June. So we're getting things like we have to sanitize everything. Food safety is so important. That's making sure that we have all of our equipment is ready. We have our stations set up so that we can be sanitizing for harvest. Every tool, every bin, every piece of equipment has to be sanitized before it gets used. And then it has to be you know, washed and sanitized as soon as it has been used. So we have to really set up systems across the farm to be able to do that type of work. And then the peak of the summer, you know, we're harvesting and cold storage. So we have two cold storage units and we'll be adding a third one this year just to keep things going. So again, that's like sanitizing the cold storage unit every day and all of that equipment, washing everything. It takes so much time. I think most people take for granted what it takes to get that produce to them. Well, I love that there's such a big ambition around the farm. I appreciate how mission-focused you are in serving your community, and I think that really came out during our conversation. I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today, being on the podcast and sharing your story and unique challenges that come with running an urban farm. We really appreciate your time today, Jesse. Yeah, thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Jesse and Brady Farm have a strong mission to support their community in whatever way they need. And I think you will find that same sentiment is true at OnTech Charter School and in agricultural science teacher Morgan Borman. They have dubbed themselves a community that cares, and you will see how they take their time to make the best intentional choices for their students to be as career ready as possible. Hi, Morgan. Thank you so much for being on our podcast, Outstanding in Their Field. On this first season of the podcast, you are a pretty unique guest in a couple of ways. You are our first charter school, and you are an agriculture science teacher. Your charter school is in the city of Syracuse, and it's fairly new and has a really unique mission. Can you tell us about your school, its focus, and about your students? Yeah, great to be here, Katie. Ontech Charter High School started two years ago, and our focus is on at-risk students in the city of Syracuse. So our charter is designed to serve over-age and under students, as well as ESL, refugee students, 
And really students who feel that, you know, normal school, they don't fit in. One of our key design elements in OnTech is actually agricultural education. And that's what makes us unique to a lot of other charters around us. We are focusing on environmental science, renewable energy, agribusiness. And another big piece is a social emotional piece. Our school is, it doesn't start until nine o'clock and classes start at about 9.30 because it's been proven through neuroscience that the teenage brain doesn't start working until about then. So we've used some really interesting research pieces to design the key elements of the school. That's really interesting, especially the part that the school has a focus on agricultural science education. Now, why was that and the creation of this project of this ONTAC charter school, why was agricultural science education a major piece of what they wanted their students to understand and how to relate to food and agriculture? Yeah, definitely. So our founder, Ellen Egan, wonderful woman, amazing professional, she and her board, her original board, did a survey and looked around the area of Onondaga County. First, they were just looking at career and technical education in the first place. They realized some of those avenues were already served, but throughout their research, they realized how many jobs are available in Onondaga County and the surrounding areas in agriculture. Also in their research, how few people are actually trained technically to fill those jobs. So we wanted to be a niche in the area to be able to bring kids up to grade level and bring kids to that level so then they can go and get those technical trainings to fill those jobs. And your charter school is for 9th through 12th graders, is that correct? Yep, 9th through 12th grade. Right now we only have 9th and 10th grade and then in two more years we'll have all four grade levels. Now, what was your path to the classroom? Yeah, so I came from a very traditional agriculture education program. I went to Bella Henderson Central School. My teacher was Steve Jones, and it was an amazing program. I loved school. I did really well in school, like honors classes and things, but I really never felt engaged until I joined our agriculture classes at school. So that made me realize just all the hands-on learning and the application of knowledge made me realize agriculture is important to learn technically, but also that it just excited me. So I then decided that I want to become an agriculture teacher because of my excitement for learning in school. And I went to Cornell for four years and then I got my master's through NC State in agriculture education extension. Can you describe what you mean by a traditional agriculture program? Yeah, a traditional agriculture program, typically it's in a very rural area where a lot of the surrounding areas are agricultural lands. So where I grew up, it was mostly dairy farming. We always made jokes, it's a real thing, that there are more cows in our school district than there are students in our school district. That's a typical agriculture program in the sense that it also teaches animal science, veterinary science, soil science. There's agricultural mechanics, and a lot of the classes serve the needs for the area. Now, did you ever think that you would be teaching in a school system as unique as OnTex when you were going through your formal teacher preparation? 
Yeah, no, I really didn't see myself within an urban environment. When I went to school, I studied international agriculture as well. And that's where I saw myself going was not in a traditional environment, but internationally. But I think because international agriculture and the study of it really focuses on grassroots platforms and learning from the people in the community and using them in their knowledge to help get them the resources that they need. So even though it's not what I originally went to school for, international agriculture really prepared me for working in an urban environment because this is the same thing. We have to give the people in these communities a voice. We have to hear what they have to say and then get them what they need so they can help their community really rise to the occasion. Now, this school, this system of schooling is pretty unique, and it's probably very different than anything that your students had been to before. When you started two years ago with your group of students, what was their understanding of our food and agriculture systems when they first started? When we first started, I'll give you a story for an example. Last year, one of our first labs that we did was a seed germination lab, and it was so surprising to me how many students had not seen a seed germinate before. Some students honestly thought that I went in the middle of the night and changed their seed because they didn't think it could happen to what they planted. They didn't have that experience before. So after that first lab, I really realized how big of a responsibility I had to the students to teach them obviously where their food came from, but giving them those hands-on experiences for them to remember and connect how our agricultural industry works. Now, what about your faculty? Do you feel like your faculty was pretty agriculturally literate? They understood our food system, or was it a learning curve for them also to think about their connections to food and agriculture in their subject areas? Yeah, it's been interesting. So one of my colleagues who actually graduated from Cornell, he's from the Bronx. So he does not have agricultural background. When he went to Cornell, was the first time he saw a cow. So there are definitely some folks in the faculty that don't have that background knowledge. But then also ONTEC has drawn some people, one of our global teachers and our English teacher, they have backgrounds in community gardens. So it's been really great to see them engage in our facilitation of agriculture within the different disciplines, you know, within global, within English, and I can do it in science. So it's been really cool to bring everyone together around agriculture, both with people who haven't had the background before, but also with the professionals who have had experience before, but now they really get to bump it up a notch and bring it to the whole school. I think that's such an interesting concept to get a whole school rallying around a common focus area and that to be food and agriculture, especially in our urban areas as we think about the non-equity of being able to access food or the difficulties in accessing food and really empower everyone, not just your faculty or not just your students, to think about that entire food system and how it works in the context of where they live. Definitely. And just students advocating that they need access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And just for them to even make those observations now and be able to say those things. That's have been really cool to see is now students are realizing and making those observations about our food system. And they're vocalizing their opinions and asking us for help. 
It's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing to happen in just two years also. Yes, we definitely have big dreams and hopes for community gardens and everything for the building and for the school. And we have to remind ourselves, or I do at times, that we're still growing. And like you said, it only has been two years. Now, your school has a pretty strong focus on project-based learning. And even before we started recording, we were talking about now that we're out of school at the moment due to COVID-19 and quarantining, social distancing, you've actually come together to create a project-based learning experience for your students that they can work through their Google Classroom platform. Can you talk about some of the projects that your students participate in and what their response is as they're working on these different projects? Yeah, so I'll talk about our distance learning one right now. Our project-based learning platform, our project right now, is about health, past, present, and future. So students can either research a topic about the past, and the question is, how has disease affected us throughout history? The present question or prompt is, how can our school and community help us stay healthy? And our third prompt and option is for the future, and it's what can we design to help us thrive in the future? So those are the prompts that students are using. They're researching right now, and then they're going to be developing an essay, and then finally an artifact. So that's going to be either a podcast or an infographic or a public service announcement, artwork. We've given them multiple options to be able to communicate what they've learned. And we've seen that giving student choice is a huge part to engagement. A second thing I'll talk about is we are a year-round school. So we have three main quarters during the typical school year. And then our fourth quarter is during the summer and it focuses on project-based learning and social-emotional health. Last year, we used STEAM, so we were using agriculture and art together in the projects. It was really refreshing to see students be able to be creative in those projects. And again, it's the student choice piece, but then also the letting students use it as an outlet for expression. Very interesting. How do they respond to that? You said that you see some increased engagement, but what are some other things that you see your students doing or their behaviors changing when they're involved in one of your project-based learning experiences? So I'll compare the beginning of last year to our summer session. The beginning of last year when we first introduced project-based learning, it actually brought out some negative behaviors because it was so different from regular school or typical school, especially the students in our community. They need structure and really all kids, but they really need structure and they need a sense of normalcy and familiarity to feel safe. And PBL was so different for them in the beginning. So then we started to do baby steps throughout the year to start doing more project-based learning projects that were a little bit more typical or bigger projects. But once we got to the summer, students that we saw that weren't comfortable participating academically throughout the year in the summer session, they were so open and they were so warm and they were so receptive to doing things hands-on. And I think because of what we did, the work we did throughout the year, the project-based learning no longer felt non-familiar to them. It was something that they were used to now and they really could wrap their arms around and embrace during the summer session. 
I think that's really amazing and makes me think a little bit about the situation that we're in right now in a quarantine situation. Do you feel that your students are more prepared to deal with the changes, the lack of structure, the changes in their life for their family now that everyone is quarantined and home? Can they deal with that better because they've done some of this project-based learning work or had those opportunities to manage change in your school setting? Yeah, I really believe they do. I also think project-based learning builds a community. It's not just learning to learn a standard and then you're moving on. Project-based learning really builds a community around an idea and it has built community around our school. So right now, because we do project-based learning and because we really focus, we always say we're a community that cares. But I think they are more willing and they're more adaptable to change because they know that they have an environment that does care and that's there for them even in uncertain times. And I think that is partially due to project-based learning in that you're working in teams and you're working around things that are sometimes unfamiliar, but then you plan out steps to get to the end goal. So I do think project-based learning has had a piece of that success. Now, do your students have a chance to visit farms, either urban farms or rural production agriculture? We've had a few different field trips, but it's something we want to ramp up in our summer session this year. We've visited Brady Farms, who you've talked to, and we took a group of students to Cornell, and they got to actually visit the research farm. So that was something that they really enjoyed because it was showing how academics and agriculture can can overlap, and it was something that they really weren't familiar with before. We really enjoyed that trip. And what are their impressions when they either go to the research farm at Cornell or go to Brady Farm? What do they take away from that? Yeah, so the first things we have to get out of the way first is either the smell or the bugs. Once we all understand that those things aren't going to hurt us, but ultimately by the end, they're asking what they can do to bring back to school, when they can come again, and realizing that these are people who support our community and support on tech. And that's also huge for them to see that people from all across the state are actually really excited for their program and excited for their success as students. So that has been really cool for them to see that they can go somewhere and it's someone that's not looking down upon them. It's someone who is really rooting for their success, even if they don't know them. Oh, that's really amazing. That has to feel like, as you mentioned before, that there is community and it could be as small as your classroom community or your school community, but for them to see how people still do care, even outside of the city limits, I think that's, that's pretty incredible for them to feel. Now, we talked about how you grew up in a traditional agriculture program, but now that you've started an urban agriculture program, what do you see as the biggest differences between growing up in that rural setting and a rural agriculture program and your new urban program? I mean, there's challenges and positives across the board in both areas. One thing I love is that my students, mostly they're blank slate. They don't have a lot of opinions one way or another, or they haven't had that much experience in agriculture. So it really excites me that I can help facilitate giving them those experiences. Another thing is that our students, a lot of them aren't up to grade level yet. So using agriculture and agricultural literacy to help them improve their own literacy has been a really great tool. 
overall, I really love teaching in this urban environment. Also the parents and the families, they want connection to agriculture too. They'll talk about working in their grandparents' gardens or on their grandparents' farms down south and saying that they would love to have an experience like that again. So giving our families also an opportunity to attach into agriculture as well. What are your hopes that your students learn about food and agriculture after they've gone through your classes or graduated even from on tech? What's your hope? My hope is that one, they realize that the skills that they learn in class and the skills that we ask them to work on in class are actually skills that they're going to use in a job, in a career. And that's something that we've really explored this year. And students are more and more receptive to that they're realizing that this isn't just like typical school, quote unquote. It's we're focusing on those career skills. Another thing that I didn't realize students picked up for me until the end of last year when they were writing me some notes was that we need to care for our earth and it's our responsibility to do so. I didn't realize that I preached that that much last year, but it was something that they came back with and said that that's what they learned last year. And thirdly, the third thing that I preach to my students and just work smarter, not harder. You have the skills and sometimes it doesn't feel like you have them, but if you break things down step by step, you can get there. So that's been a huge takeaway too for the kids. Now, what do you see as the future of OnTech Charter School? Yes, the future of OnTech, it makes me very excited. Last year, we did a container urban garden. And this year, well, we were going to, these few weeks that we're out now, we we're going to start breaking ground for a community garden in the area. But I want the community to know that OnTech is a place where the community is heard and having our students be voices for that. One way that our students have done this is five of our students are right now employed at the Rosamond Gifford Zoo as zoo educators. They're helping the public learn that biodiversity is important, taking care of our environment is important, and that agriculture is a piece of that. So it's been really cool for our students to be able to facilitate that message out to our community, and I hope that's something that keeps growing. Now, for your students that are working at the Rosamond Gifford Zoo in Syracuse, is that part of a structured, what we would know in agricultural education as the supervised agricultural experience or work-based experience program? Or is that something they've done on their own that they wanted to, to take on a new challenge or, or have a job themselves? So this is a program through CNY Works and through the zoo to provide students with jobs during the spring and summertime, but this is also, they're going to be using the jobs in their supervised agricultural experiences as well. Something that they're very excited about. FFA is still very new to them and they're learning every day and they're actually really excited to get some blue jacket too. That's great, that's very exciting. Morgan, I think that the work that you're doing and your entire team is doing at OnTech Charter School is so important for our urban students. I think you're doing a true service and you and your team are so thoughtfully executing education for them in a way that they've never felt before. So 
kudos to you and the amazing work you're doing. We were so excited to be able to have you talk with us on our podcast today about all the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about OnTech and all these students that we hold so close to our hearts. And just, I want to give a huge shout out to my team and to our founder for facilitating all this work together. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on New York agriculture in the classroom, visit agclassroom.org forward slash NY. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service. Visit the show notes to learn more about our guests today and follow their adventures in the city and in the classroom. For now, thanks for listening. And stay tuned for next season when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their fields.